Now today we're beginning a new series called Asking for a Friend. I love that phrase. Asking for a friend jokes to me are right up there with dad jokes and I am a sucker for a good dad joke. So I read a couple of asking for a friend things this week. um, Can you cook bacon with a hair straightener? Asking for a friend. Is it okay to wear a Snuggie to pick up my daughter from school? Asking for a friend. At what age do you stop sprinting up the stairs after turning out the lights so the monsters don't get you? Asking for a friend. Is it proper etiquette to tweet with your pinky finger up in the air? Asking for a friend. I think about our friend Crystal who gets a huge kick out of people drinking with the pinky up. Is it possible to eat so much food that scientifically you are more food than human? Asking for a friend. Kayla said she's seen people as a, as a nurse who are pretty close to that tipping point. Does anyone know how many calories you burn standing on a scale crying? Asking for a friend. That's kind of one of the COVID questions, isn't it? Like uh, I was talking with a couple people and they said whatever the amount is, it's not enough. When you do squats, are your knees supposed to sound like a goat chewing on aluminum cans stuffed with celery? Asking for a friend. I definitely thought about, uh, Jason Ritchie, I thought about you on this. What does it mean when the holy water sizzles when it hits your forehead? Asking for a friend. Truthfully, we all have questions we want answers to, but can be a little embarrassed to ask. And when it comes to God, since we can't see God, we can't grasp the answers, we have to instead exercise some faith. We can often like have these deep God questions that are really big in our minds, but we can be very reluctant to ask. We don't want to embarrass ourselves maybe or show that we don't know quite as much as people think we should. The nice thing about COVID-19 Facebook Live Church for Christ Church Charlestown, it's given some of some of our viewers a permission to kind of come in and and be here and sort of maintain some anonymity and yet also begin to ask some questions. And the other day I reached out to several people who've been visiting over the last couple of months. All of them are from New England originally. Most of them, if not all of them, have come from a Roman Catholic background. And and many of them have grown up in this neighborhood or have lived here for a long time. And I asked them, do you have any questions about God or church or faith or anything like that? And this series, Asking for a Friend, is aimed at sort of answering those questions that we heard from those people. In that sense, I hope the series is super encouraging and also super helpful. Either way, I want to tell you I love you and our church loves you. And we're so grateful that you're here and that you're on this quest for truth and you're allowing us into that quest. Now, the first question of this series is, is this, is, this came from a really close friend of ours. Uh, we were exchanging texts and she asked, is this, and by this she meant church and religion and all this God stuff, is it all real? The way she said it was, is there more to this than just praying and going to church and doing religious things? And then she added in the next text, or is it just the stuff we tell ourselves? Have you ever asked a question like that? It's such a good question. I've felt that way before, if I'm being totally honest. Have you ever looked up at the ceiling in a church service or over at the stained glass windows and wondered, is that is this real? Like, is there more to this? Or have you ever looked at a pastor or a preacher talking, communicating a message and says, does he believe this? And has he always believed this stuff? He seems to believe so easily. 
you ever seen a grandparent or a parent or a friend who believed with little effort and tons of grace when it's a real struggle for you to actually believe? If your answer is yes, let me say, first of all, me too. Me too. I feel you. I've been there. Welcome to the club. You're human. It's part of being human. Timothy Keller, uh, best-selling author of Reason for God, regular guest columnist for the New York Times, and uh, founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, has said this of doubt and faith. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. It's no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. See, I really believe that an unexamined faith is actually a very vulnerable faith. If you're wondering if a car is a good purchase, what do you do? You take it for a test drive. You look under the hood. You have a mechanic or someone smarter than you take a look at it. And they really tell you, you don't just sort of just go buy the car because it looked pretty and drive it off the lot. At least, hopefully, you don't do that. So the next few weeks, we're going to ask some hard questions. We're going to look under the hood rather than coast while sort of embracing God and also sort of embracing a ton of intellectual, personal, uh, and pragmatic doubts. Rather than just continuing to doubt and keep one foot in the church and one foot out here in the real world, we want to really look under the hood and see if we can get some alignment. Fortunately for us, in, in the Bible, in John 4, Jesus encounters a woman who had really similar doubts. Now, early in Jesus' ministry, passing from southern Palestine, which is um, called Judea in the New Testament, to northern Palestine, which is called the Galilee, usually people took, usually especially Jews, took this really long route where they would kind of go out to the east, go across the Jordan River, go up, and then cross back over into the Galilee. And they did that to avoid a group of people called Samarians or Samaritans. Uh, Now, Samaritans were kind of religiously mixed people. They kind of believed in the God of the Bible, and then they kind of didn't. They created this sort of God of mixed cultures that was kind of like all things to all people rather than truly worshiping the Lord. And so Jews would totally avoid going through Samaria and encountering the goods, the, the Samaritans, who Jesus in a parable famously called the Good Samaritans. They just saw the Samaritans as like sellouts or really just pagans. They would say all these awful things about them. Jews didn't interact with them. They didn't speak with them. They didn't have anything to do with them. But Jesus went right through Samaria. He didn't shy away. And when we pick up in John 4, it's the middle of the day. It's hot. And while the disciples are out going to get food, Jesus is sitting by a well. Now it's midday and a woman is coming to draw water at the well. Typically, women uh, in sort of Middle Eastern culture would be going early in the morning. It would kind of do two things. One, it would keep them out of the hot of the day. And two, it would give them some social interaction. Yet here's this woman. It's hot. It's midday. Jesus is thirsty. And she comes out to draw water. Um, 
Let's read in, in John 4, if we might. Beginning in verse 7, it says this, Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Two social uh, faux pas here. Jesus answered her, verse 10 says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now she's asking religious questions. She's identifying a little bit with the Jews and with her history. She's asking personal questions, social questions, all of these things, continuing in verse 16. Now Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus looked right into her soul, and she knows it. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's sort of dropping religious, cultural experiences on him. But you say, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For the salvation is from the Jews. But the hour's coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, Jesus says, verse 24. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. About that moment, the disciples walk up. The Bible tells us John wrote that the woman left her water jar. She went to town. She begins to tell everybody, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. The village begins to come out and Jesus begins to share the gospel with them. But if we go back to the beginning of the story, this begins with this woman being really shocked that Jesus would even be talking with her. She's dodging. She's changing the subject. She's speaking out of doubt and uncertainty, kind of what she's heard. She's aware and she's ashamed of her sin. If she were asking, she might say something like this. She might say, look, look, Jesus, if that's your name. Look, I know I got my issues, but I'm no angel. I'm also no devil either. I just need to know. Is this stuff just something our forefathers have passed down to us? Or is this legit? Because right now, I've got one foot in and one foot out. I am living a life where I want to believe this stuff, but my life is kind of a relational wreck. Is this the real deal? If her statement and my friend's question resonate, we need to address, I think today, three areas of doubt. Let me pray for us. God, will you please speak to us? We speak to the doubts in our minds, in our hearts, 
in our souls, the doubts that flow out of the way we think, the way the, out of what we've experienced, even out of our relationships. And God, will you help us to come to a conclusion that not only is this stuff legit, it's like living and breathing and can be experienced as we follow Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the first kind of doubts we've got to address, honestly, are scientific and, and moral, philosophical, uh, philosophical, intellectual doubts. Concerning the scientific types of doubts, I remember being at the university years ago having professors who would attack faith, especially Christianity, and undermine it, assault it, try to get me to stop believing and other students to stop believing. Some of their attacks were on science, saying science and Christianity were incompatible. Honestly, there were moments where I wavered and I really had to go and look hard, study the enormity of the universe, the, the fine-tuning of the universe. And, and I, as I did that, as I heard scientists speak and I read, the more that I read and heard, the more I found science actually affirming my faith in Christ. Where there's design, after all, there's usually a designer. Where there's intricate design, there's usually a really gifted designer. See, if we think about that just in Charlestown, let's think about the Bunker Hill Monument. It didn't just happen that once upon a time there was a big obelisk in the middle of this neighborhood. In fact, it was envisioned by a man named Solomon Willard. And then the rock, in the first time this ever happened in history, actually traveled by rail from the granite uh, rock came from Quincy up to Charlestown by this brilliantly engineered rail system. And then for 17 years, at great labor and great cost, it was worked on until it was finally completed. If the Bunker Hill Monument required such skill and design and effort, how much more the universe and its precision and scope? Donald Page has said the likelihood that the universe just happened is 10 to the 10th power times 123, or 10 followed by a billion, billion, billion zeros repeated a billion, billion times. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. To give context, the number of subatomic particles in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. The universe is not randomly designed. If we consider its complexity, it points towards a designing God. So Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 1, 19 through 20, that God's existence and power are written into the complexity of the universe as clues to who he is. So we can't go out and look at the night sky, look through a telescope, look down through a microscope, and not see God on some level. It's not that those things are God's, those things point to God. And seeing them is not enough to save but it gives us the clues to start down the path toward him. Another type of intellectual doubts that we should have or do all have is philosophical and moral doubts. These are questions like whether everyone can have their own truth, what's called relative truth, or if fixed truth is out there that we all ought to adhere to, it's called absolute truth. Questions of the problems of the problem of evil. How can a good God let bad things happen in the universe? Whether all religions are essentially the same or is Christianity unique. That's next week's message, by the way. If people have free will or if it's all determined by an all-knowing God. These type of moral philosophical questions. They're legit. Those are legit questions. In that same letter to the church at Rome, Paul wrote that people have laws written on their hearts, even pre-Christians, 
He says that in Romans 2, 14 through 15. It's why we live in a world where we can't exactly all agree on whether morals are absolute, but we can agree on social justice. That white men senselessly killing an unarmed African-American, that genocide, that kidnapping or abusing young women are absolutely morally wrong in all circumstances. Now, we don't necessarily want to be told that we are wrong, but we know deep down when we see wrong done in the world. And if we know it about social justice, the truth is there's some type of moral compass that's in all of us. This woman is working through these intellectual doubts. You can look and see if she's talking about where to worship and how that goes down and all of those things. She's working through questions about religion, where proper worship occurs, and morals, whether her relationships make her acceptable or not. Here's my encouragement based on what I know about scripture uh, concerning intellectual doubts. There is truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, no one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is a person, ultimately. So when we find truth in the Bible, in math and science, or even in a proverb from some other culture or religion, we can know that God is actually the author of it. We don't say, if Christianity is true, then only what's in the Bible is truth and everything else is rubbish. Rather, we say, God authored truth and Jesus is truth. So when we find truth, it's a shadow pointing us toward him and reflecting something of him. Which leads me to this fierce conviction. If you're wondering if it's all real and are wrestling with intellectual doubt, scientific or philosophical, honestly admitting, confronting, and exploring your doubts will result in God, the truth, revealing himself to you and even drawing you into him. But you'll still have to make a leap of faith. And let me say it again. If you sincerely explore truth, you will find God drawing you into him. You will still get to a point where you have to make a leap of faith, but he is not hiding. He will answer your intellectual doubts. The second type of doubts we have are personal doubts. Now, many in this series got our ideas about whether this stuff is legit from Roman Catholic parents. Personally, I got mine from a Baptist single mom and from my grandparents. Others initially get their beliefs from parents or loved ones of some other denomination or religion. Some are handed of religion of uh, nothing, uh, having parents who were atheists or maybe parents who just didn't talk about this kind of stuff. For many of us, as we become young adults, our, our peers our teachers and professors, our culture, and others even begin to shape our faith and beliefs. This I know, at some point, faith, religion, if you want, should become yours. It should become yours. Now think about the woman in the well. In verse 12, she's talking about our father Jacob. In verse 20, she's talking, she says, our fathers worshiped on that mountain. She's talking about the beliefs that come from others. By verse 25, she says, I know the Savior, the Messiah, is coming. It's getting less and less about others' beliefs and more and more about what she's coming to believe as she interacts with Jesus. And at verse 39, she says, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. And I would add that she probably might have even said something like, And loved me anyway. Come see a man who told me all I ever did and loved me anyway. 
To the person who asks, is this it or is there more? I would say, I believe so. I think your parents probably believe so as well. But what do you believe? She asked about praying and going to church and doing religious things. Those things aren't an end unto themselves. They're, they're actually evidence. They don't cause God to love us any more than this woman going up to some mountain would have caused God to love her. Rather, they evidence a belief. And for one who's confronted personal doubts and trusted Christ, prayer, church, and religious actions point to Jesus. They strengthen faith in Jesus, and they even testify to belief in Jesus. In other words, despite our doubts, those three things, church and prayer and religious sort of acts, are how God says to me, I love you. And when I do those things, that's how I say back to God, I love you too. The same is true for you when you do them. Jesus is calling her and each of us to worship in spirit and in truth. In fact, he says true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, Sam Storms has written that to worship God in spirit means that it must originate from within, from the heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love of God and gratitude for all he's done. Worship cannot be mechanical or formulistic. This is what my friend was talking about when she texted us this question. It demands, he goes on, that all physical postures or symbolic actions must be infused with heartfelt commitment and faith and love and zeal. He goes on to add that to worship uh, in truth means to conform to the revelation of God in Scripture. To worship in truth for the Christian means to conform ourselves, to bend ourselves to God and to his word. It, that faith must be informed by who God is and what he is like. Worship's not meant to be formed by what feels good, but by the light of what is true. Here's the thing. Your faith should be your faith, rooted, though, in God's spirit and God's truth. Do your homework. Ask someone who is a good example of faith, truly has a relationship with Christ. Examine the Bible. I would encourage you to start with this book, the book of John. Be careful of sources. Listen, people, websites, certainly, even some books. Oftentimes, liars will sort of masquerade as truth-tellers, and they will peddle truth that's actually a lie masqueraded as truth and deceive people in the name of truth, really as anti-Christ's, um, while all sort of sounding like Christ, or at least trying to appear to do so. Jesus is truth. Work your way toward Jesus and even toward a relationship with him. Ultimately, make a decision. Move toward being with Jesus or against Jesus. There's no sort of middle ground. We're with Jesus or we, in fact, are sadly against him on his terms. Don't ride the fence. And when you decide to get off the fence to one side or the other, understand it requires faith and courage. The third type of doubts we have to deal with are social doubts. Do you ever feel social doubts towards Christians? I resonate with the prayer I've seen in memes, Lord, save me from your people. I've probably been the one that people were praying that about at times. I personally, though, want to find middle ground between an atheist and a fundamentalist. I don't really want to be either. Between anything goes and all religions are equal and fire and brimstone and hallelujah and acting like a crazy person. I want there to be a middle ground. My pastor growing up would sometimes say, 
Uh, some people are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. And some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I'd like to be somewhere in between. I think this woman in John 4 has worked through a lot of those doubts. She's hopping off the fence and she's figured it out. Everyone knows she is relationally uh, shady. She is a loose woman of questionable morals and yet she's all in. I love how verse 28 says, So the woman left her water jar and she went to invite others. She left her burden. She left her story. She left her shame. She left her isolation. She left the sin, she left the the yoke of sin sort of embodied in that water jar and she uh, that she carried probably for maybe years and years and she's inviting others to come and check it out. Here's a powerful confession of faith I would call my friend toward as she examines her doubts. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Now that requires examination, but this is the crux of Christianity. My friend and everyone else has to consider, did a Jewish man named Jesus live and claim to be the Son of God? Did he die on the cross? Did he rise from the dead? Continuing that confession, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I am not perfect. I don't have all the answers. But I believe. I am in with Jesus, and I am willing to leave everything else behind to follow him. Essentially, that's kind of the woman's testimony we see in John 4. She leaves her jar. She comes to follow Jesus on the confession. Um, Come see a man who saw all I ever did. And and I would add, loves me nonetheless. She dealt with her religious questions and her intellectual doubts. She dealt with her personal doubts revolving around God accepting her despite her five husbands and current live-in relationship. She jumped all in on God's terms. And on her terms, she found that kind of middle ground uh, with her social doubts. Asking for a friend. Is this all real? Is this legit? Or is this just stuff that JD and other people are telling ourselves? Again, let me say, it's a great question. It's a great one. Ultimately, despite our doubts and sins and even our religious upbringing, like the woman, we all have to examine what we believe and we have to make our own decision. I believe it's legit. Frankly, I've done a lot of homework, uh, study, doubt examination, And he'll come to the conclusion that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And he did exactly what he said he would do. Have you? Imagine how your life would change if you said, yes, I believe. Imagine how it would change if you stopped delaying, stopped sitting on one side, on both sides of the fence and came to a decision. Imagine how our community would change, by the way, if 18,000 people had personal clarity about which side they were on. They stopped kind of straddling the fence regarding Jesus, his resurrection, his forgiveness, his power, his church, rather than sort of coasting on secondhand information of parents or traditions or culture. Imagine if that change began with you. Like the woman at the well leaving everything and telling her neighbors despite her past, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Imagine if you began authentically and humbly and courageously to tell a neighbor or a friend or a family member all about Jesus as done in your life. It'd be incredible. If if you're like my friend, I want to encourage you, examine your doubts. Read John, ask a friend, move toward a decision, and when you make a decision, move forward courageously. Stop straddling the fence. Let us know when you make a decision. We want to celebrate that with you. 
If you're already a convinced believer, consider those around you wrestling with doubts and consider if God would have you walk across the room or across the street and just listen to their story and maybe, if they ask, speak about what God has done in you. Next Sunday, finally, I mentioned this earlier, at 12 p.m. after the gathering, if you're up for it, and if there's and there's no shame if you're not up for it yet, either because of faith, uh, where you are in your faith journey, or because of just health concerns, we're going to meet at 425 Medford Street in the parking lot down and sort of in the back of the Shrafts complex for a time to see one another and walk and just kind of be the church. Wear a mask, bring a blanket, dress comfortably so you can walk and connect at a safe distance. If the weather's not good, we'll postpone it. If you're ill in any way, stay home. If you're afraid, stay home. We love you, but we want everybody to stay well, including you. We get it. This is a moment for unity, not division. If you're on the fence and you're wanting to step off, just a baby step, this is a great baby step. If your faith is your own, come out. If you want to sort of identify yourself with this crazy bunch of uh, people called Christ Church Charlestown, come out to 425 Medford Street. Or even if you're just curious, come on out. Our prayer presence together, and maybe your presence there as well, will be a confirmation of the reality and the power of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for what you're saying to us. Thank you for what you're saying to our hearts today. For the one who is wrestling with doubts, maybe intellectual doubts, maybe personal or maybe social ones, I pray you would give them clarity. And for people who have been on the fence and are ready to step off the fence into believing in you, God, I pray that you would give them courage to pray just in the quietness of their hearts. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I invite you into my life. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying and rising again just for me. As best I know how today, I commit my life to follow you. Everything is yours. God, for the ones who are sitting on that fence and aren't yet ready to move, give them courage to explore what's keeping them from movement. Help us to love them well and engage them in the process. God, for the ones who are convinced already that Jesus is God and he rose from the dead, I pray that they would consider who in their life maybe they need to cross the street or cross the room and talk with. God, for all of us, help us to, to live as your people, um, to live in such a way that we don't cause others to have doubt, to walk with you humbly and clearly and in relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. Don't forget to fill out your connection card, ChristChurchCharleston.com slash connect. Don't forget about next Sunday, uh, June 7th. We'll be meeting down at 425 Medford after the service at 12 o'clock. Would love for you to be there if you're well and if you're comfortable. If not, you are part of the family, and we will look forward to all gathering together soon. But this is our next first step. God bless you guys until we see one another again. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he smile on you. And may you walk in grace.